Hello and welcome to this first Faber podcast of 2009. My name's George Miller, and throughout this year, I'll be bringing you a regular monthly programme featuring Faber authors both new and well-established, as well as some special features to mark Faber's 80th anniversary year. Later in today's programme, I'll be talking to Sam Taylor about his new novel, The Island at the End of the World. If I was going to sum up the book in... in one or two words, I would say it was about parental love. It's about the love between the parent and the child, and, and the other way around as well. My first guest today is Graham Farmelow, author of The Strangest Man, The Hidden Life of Paul Dirac, Quantum Genius. The name of Paul Dirac is little known outside the world of professional science, certainly less familiar than many of his contemporaries, such as Heisenberg, Niels Bohr, Schrödinger and Oppenheimer. Yet Graham Farmelow's book shows that Dirac, a taciturn, quite possibly autistic man, had no peers among 20th century theoretical physicists, except Einstein himself. Yet you'd be hard-pressed to find any public commemoration of him in Bristol, the city where he was born in 1902. I asked Graham what had sparked his own interest in Dirac. My interest in Dirac began when I was, uh, I guess, about 15 years old, when I had a, a, a job selling raffle tickets to the local Liberal Party, and I met, purely by chance, a theoretical physicist by the name of John Bendel, actually. Uh, in And he happened to mention on a doorstep in uh, the southeast London town of uh, Orpington, uh, that he was a theoretical physicist, uh, and later on that he was very, very enamoured of Paul Dirac. I'd never heard of him. It turned out that uh, John Bendel would qualify as a certifiable Dirac fanatic, totally obsessed with Dirac's work. Uh, I took an interest in this and began to read or try to read Dirac's famous book, The Principles of Quantum Mechanics. L that really made me want to be a theoretical physicist. I'd never seen physics written up like that. It's it with its tremendous mathematical clarity, its power of its reasoning, the elegance of its arguments. And I went on to become a theoretical physicist, not remotely in that Dirac's league, but it was that encounter on that Orpington doorstep that that led me to my journey towards Dirac. And presumably at that stage, it was Dirac the thinker the writer, the scientist, rather than Dirac, the man, the character whom you evoke in the book that you were responding to. Very much so. I knew nothing about Dirac's strangeness, so to speak, the Dirac stories that are so famous in the world of physics uh, until quite a bit later. I might I might have just heard that he was a bit taciturn or something, but I, I really had very little idea of Dirac's personality. But once I became a, a professional theoretical physicist, so to speak, or a theoretical physics student, then you start to be inducted like everybody else into these Dirac stories, right, which are just everywhere. People joke about these stories and retell them, sometimes make them up, I suspect. And uh, yes, uh, that's how I started to glimpse Dirac in his, you know, the, in his fullness, so to speak. And these stories, you you relate a lot of them in the book. And what comes across is that most of them seem not to be apocryphal. The, the story that I confess, when I read about it, I thought, well, this is probably untrue. But now I believe, I, I, I would say with some hesitation, I'm certain it is true uh, that uh, the, the following anecdote, which dates back to the late 1920s when he was giving a talk in the Midwest of the United States of America. He gave the talk 
sat down, chair of the uh, seminar or whatever it was, said, uh, Dr. Dirac, would you be prepared to take uh, questions? And Dirac said, yes, of course. Somebody at the back put his uh, hand up and said, uh, wonderful talk, uh, Dr. Dirac. But one thing, I, I really didn't understand that uh, equation on the top right hand of the blackboard. And everyone turns, looks at Dirac, says nothing, doesn't move. The chair breaks the uh, the ice, so to speak, and turns to him and said, uh, Dr. Dirac, would you like to respond to the question? And Dirac said, matter of factly, wasn't a question, it was a comment. I, he said that at least three times. What, one of his best friends, who also found it difficult to believe, actually asked him point blank whether he did say it, and Dirac said yes, and each time they deserved it. So you have there someone who is... The best you could say is literal minded to a, a comic fault, so to speak, but has absolutely no sense of the kind of wide berth we give each other in conversation. You know, uh, he has just had no sense of that. And I conjecture in in the book, uh, I'm, I must say, I think it's perverse, in my opinion, to argue otherwise. But I suspect that uh, Dirac is, uh, would, would now be uh, someone who would be diagnosed autistic. Take us back to Bristol in 1902 when Dirac was born and tell me a little bit about the kind of family and milieu in which he was raised. Dirac was born Swiss because his father was a, uh, a Swiss citizen, a teacher in a local school, uh, Merchant Venturers, very well endowed school by the Merchant uh, Venturers Association in Bristol. Uh, his mother was Cornish. She, she said, I'm not English, I'm Cornish. They married in uh, the late 1890s and Dirac was their second son. I don't think that they were particularly perceived as a particularly odd family. I, I, I must say I, I can't be absolutely certain of that but my clear impression was that they were just an ordinary family living in a terrace of houses in a modest suburb of uh, Bristol. He was very very fine school teacher, very successful in what he did. She, she was a perhaps slightly naive, but uh, good-hearted woman, uh, married an exotic Swiss who she, whom she met in the library. And there we are, family eventually became a family with a, comp a completion when they had three children. And it looked, as I say, just like hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of families at that time. What we hear from Dirac, from the reminiscences he gave when he was... Uh, just about to turn 60 and then in private later on was that for him for his for his recollection it was a complete it was an x-rated childhood i want to stress this is all in dirac's perception we have no other accounts of this uh, except for a few comments his mother uh, his his mother made in letters and what have you which again they're very biased towards of course his mother's view of course dirac's memory was of a tyrannical father a man very very keen on his children's education, but with no understanding whatever of the need to socialize, to have friends around, you know, to, you know, to have time when you relax and what have you. And in particular, it was the mealtimes that Dirac recalled were particularly horrendous. And the reason for that was that his father t uh, insisted that his children only spoke to him in French. In fact, I heard one anecdote, published anecdote, where Dirac thought that men spoke French and women spoke English. Extraordinary. But anyway, it turned out, for, for reasons we don't know, that his brother and sister would eat with his mother in the kitchen and that he would sit 
at the table with his father and that his father would punish any kind of error whatever in his French, a botched subjunctive, a mispronounced word or what have you, by denying Paul, his son, his next request, even if it was as basic as, can I go to the toilet? Or can I, uh, can I leave the table? Because Dirac had very bad digestion of that thing. And he, I draw a veil over some of the horrible things that happened at that table. But in particular, Dirac never forgot what he saw as the great brutality of those mealtimes. From the book, it's very clear that physicists fall into two categories, the experimenters, the empiricists, mm. and the, the thinkers, the, the, the physicists who proceed by pure reason, the top-down thinkers. Mm. And Dirac fell very clearly into the second camp. Yes, I'd just qualify that a little. Yeah, you're, it's, certainly, it would, it, it's certainly true that Dirac was top-down. He knew what was going on in experiments, and he'd love, he, he, he loved going into the laboratories and seeing how they were done. But he believed that the right way to do physics, right, to be, do theoretical physics, I should say, is not to be to try and build up theories, so to speak, from elements, from data elements, but to keep an eye on the data and to try and go in at the very top. Another classic top-down thinker, of course, is Einstein. When he uh, set out his theory of gravity, he, he, he had no new data to look at. He went straight in and was looking for the governing equation of the governing force of the universe. Dirac very, very strongly uh, had that view, and that's why he's seen even more than Einstein, perhaps, as the, if you like, the great brain alone in the universe, trying to divine these mathematical laws that, that describe the harmonies at the, at the core of, uh, of our material existence. When someone meets you at a, at a, a party and, and says, well, you know, what, what is this man's claim to fame that you've been working on for all these years? How do you explain the significance of, of Dirac? Dirac was one of the great co-inventors of the theory of the universe at the finest level, the laws that govern atoms and molecules and, uh, and stuff even finer than that. That is the most revolutionary theory that scientists have found in the last 120 years. Dirac's expression of those theories is unequaled in its clarity, its power, its beauty. As Freeman Dyson said, Dirac's papers, unlike any other, because they were like perfectly carved marble statues falling from the sky, and that's a brilliant way of describing it. Look at the other papers, great, sometimes he was beaten occasionally by other people, but nobody had that beauty and clarity of expression. Other papers look scrambling, awkward, hesitant, what have you. Dirac's mind was, was special. He was one of the co-inventors, two co-inventors of something called field theory, which is the way we describe the kind of physics we do at the Large Hadron Collider, which is going to open up for sure uh, this year, 2009. Dirac's work is all over what we call the standard model of the fundamental constituents of the universe, particularly through his work on field theory, but in, most certainly his, his main contribution, if you like, most famous contribution, was through what's called the Dirac equation. What he did there uh, in late 1927 was to marry quantum theory and relativity and to produce a single description of the only known fundamental particle then, the electron, a, a, an irreducible speck of matter, so to speak. So Dirac 
married those two things together, produced that equation that was seen as a complete miracle by other people. There were something like 15, 20 people, Nobel quality, trying to do that. When Dirac sent his summary of what he'd done to Germany, he, he expressed it in four lines at the, as a postscript to a, to a letter he wrote. And they were, frankly, devastated. Nobody could believe, where, did, where on earth did he get this from? And it stands now as one of the great miracles of the 20th century. In the theories that describe your electrons, your quarks, your strangeness, your charm, and all the rest of it, the Dirac equation is absolutely smack bang in the centre of that. It is one of the miracles of, of modern physics. You say in the book that one way of evaluating a scientist's career is to look at its posthumous productivity. And I wondered how you felt Dirac fared on that measure. I think Dirac is definitely pos uh, posthumously productive. I mean, people are still using uh, Dirac's papers. Uh, I learned, uh, I was fortunate enough to be uh, a visitor to the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, where they have a peerless uh, faculty of uh, theoretical physicists, and they still look at Dirac's work. I, I had several conversations with uh, with some of the great physicists there who were talking about reading his papers for profit. Now, that's extremely unusual, it has to be said. Science is ruthlessly opportunistic in the sense that once a paper is done and digested by the community, people put it into textbooks and don't look at the papers. But with Dirac, they are special. They really are special. And it is still something that leading physicists do with profit. Go back and read his work. And as I say, uh, his work on relativity, on quantum mechanics, still is yielding fruit now. It's around a quarter of a century since his death. This is a first mm -hmm. biography. Presumably you hope this will begin to establish his place in the pantheon of, of great 20th century scientists that so far has eluded him, at least in the, in the popular imagination. Yes, well, Dirac, among physicists, there's no question about Dirac's uh, status. He would be, I mean, Einstein, I think, pretty well arguably at the top, but below Einstein are just a handful of people who could be fit to stand on that podium with him, and Dirac unquestionably is one of them. But he is, uh, he's virtually unknown outside uh, the, the community of uh, theoretical physicists or at least scientists. I really hope that this book will make Dirac's achievement uh, widely accessible to many people. And it, it, I also say that I hope it's not the last biography of him, uh, because there's a, you know, it's, it's a remarkable life, and I hope other people have a shot at it too. That was Graham Farmelow, whose life of Paul Dirac, the strangest man, is out now in hardback. My second guest today is novelist Sam Taylor. I spoke to Sam when he visited the Faber offices recently from his home in France, to mark the publication of his third book. The Island at the End of the World is a story of a father and his three children living alone on an island after a great flood. The father has a fierce desire to protect his children from anything from what he calls the before world, but they inevitably are growing up and away from him. The story is told in three very different voices, Paz, which can thunder with Old Testament rage, the adolescent Alice's, shaped by her reading of Shakespeare, and the young boy Finn's, which is transcribed almost phonetically. Had it, I asked Sam, been a struggle to capture these voices on the page? Not very much. No, I kind of, I kind of knew what they would be like. I mean, certainly the, the boy's voice, Finn's voice, I'd had an idea for quite a long time before. But Alice's voice... Again, that, that was it was kind of inspired by um, the second part of The Sound and the Fury by William Faulkner, which is, is written in a very unusual style with, with kind of his, all his thoughts in italics and, and the rest of it 
very plainly described and and yeah that was one of the the models for that um but the both those voices came quite easily the father's voice i originally wrote that section differently and went back and rewrote it afterwards in a kind of in a fury in a way i wrote it very quickly and i think that, that actually helped in terms of the way his voice comes across it's interesting you say in a fury because one of the things that really stood out for me in the book was how well you write about anger that that sort of li- literal seeing red that sort of seething rage tell me about tell me about that experience how did you how did you get yourself into the right frame of mind in order to to bring that off on the page it wasn't difficult actually maybe i've got sort of hidden reserves of anger deep down but um i i do have i do have a temper i very rarely feel as as depressed as fearful as as furious as as the father in that book feels but i think most of my books it's kind of tapping into emotions that you felt and then kind of just increasing the intensity of them and seeing where they go from that. It was actually, yeah, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed, <laughs> I enjoyed looking at the world from that kind of um, red-eyed perspective in a way, you know. You can see the trajectory of his rage as it increases. And it seemed to me as that happened, biblical language became more pronounced. His diction kind of changed and you got more capital letters. And it then sort of sometimes sort of exploded into a mixture of biblical and profanity. And that was kind of like the... The, the peak of his of his anger. Yeah, I suppose it's, it's slightly musical in a way that it's kind of you know there's a, the, it goes towards a crescendo. Uh, yeah, it was always the, the Bible was always going to be in there, the Old Testament. And reading reading through that, I, I, there are some absolutely fantastic, beautiful passages in there. Some of them I used directly. Some of them I kind of twisted to my own purposes. Some bits I I invented which sounded biblical but but were actually just original. But yeah, I love the, the the language in that book, and and of course the, there's also a lot of Shakespeare in there as well, and the two were written not that far apart in terms of the the translation, the English translation of the Bible. So yeah, it's got that kind of, I suppose, what is it, 17th century English feel to it in a way. But it's also a book set in the future, and Finn's voice is a kind of a kind of reinvented language in a way. So that was mm. enjoyable too as well. And Alice's language, as you say, Shakespeare. Shakespeare has been one of her few, the few books that she's got on this on this island. She's got Shakespeare and the Bible and some fairy tales. How did you? Because it's obviously quite dangerous, isn't it, for a writer to to think, well, I'm going to I'm going to expropriate Shakespeare and embed Shakespearean language into my text. How did you um How did you set about that? Did you immerse yourself in Shakespeare, or was it things from your own memory that were sort of coming back as you as you sat down and and wrote? No, I read I read a lot. I mean, I spent a summer reading not the complete works, but a lot of a lot of his plays. I mean, I'd, a lot of them I'd read before, and the, the, certainly The Tempest and um, King Lear and and various others. I, I reread, kind of deliberately looking for for quotations that would fit in with the story that I was writing. And you know, possibly it was a dangerous thing to do. I, I must admit, I didn't really worry about it. I just kind of thought it would work, and and you know, trusted that it would. Maybe perhaps some people find that find that it doesn't, but um, I, I was happy with the with the effect of it. Mm-hmm. So. I was sort of trying to think about what what was the key to the the character of of Ben, the the father in the book. And there's a there's a the quote that I marked down, which is "Fear makes a person more malleable." He says that in one of his one of his sort of reflective moments. And it seemed to me that that he was using fear in order to to control this little this little world that he he'd created by sort of setting up imaginary barriers around his children. Yes, but I mean, also Ben is is extremely full of fear I mean I, I think that is the predominant emotion even more so than anger I think really the anger the anger comes from the fear the, the whole book is written 
his his parts are all written with the desperate fear of what is going to happen, which he knows almost certainly will happen. I mean, the the, the recurring line from the Bible is um, the thing that I feared is is come upon me, and it's kind of you know that that is his obsession. So fear is his world in a way, and I, I, yes, he knows how to to use it as well. But I think it, it mostly it consumes him really. Mm. Can you say a little bit about? about where those fears come from in his case without giving away too much about the plot of the book. Sure, yeah. I mean, it begins on, on an island and it begins with Ben climbing to the top of a very tall tree and seeing out on the ocean a dark mark, which is another human being coming towards their island. Ben's fear is that that this person is coming from what he calls the before world, which is basically the, the world before the flood. And which to to Ben, who's who sees himself as a sort of second Noah, that that world is contaminated. That world is 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 Babylon. His fear is that this person will bring the the lies as he sees it, and the contamination of Babylon, and infect his children. I, I looked at a profile of you, which appeared in a Nottinghamshire newspaper, and the URL which went went with it, you know, went forward slash changed life novelist in France, and I wondered if that was. If that was kind of how you saw yourself in sort of haiku form now. Um, <laughs> I, I don't think anybody ever thinks about themselves in, in the way that the rest of the world does, do they? But um, yes, I suppose so. If I had to describe my life in five words, that would, those are probably more or less the words I would choose, yes. I mean, I was a journalist for for nine years in London for The Observer. And, and it wasn't a job that I planned or intended to do at all. I, I intended to be to write novels in a kind of very vague and, you know, 19-year-old <laughs> way when I was younger. And my, in my imagination, I was just going to travel around Southern Europe and, and bum around on beaches and, and write this book. And then I accidentally became a journalist. I sent off a, an article to a newspaper just to see if I could get it published. And they wrote back and, and phoned me back and, and asked me what I wanted to write about. So I ended up, without meaning to, becoming a, a music journalist and writing about other arts as well. And did it for for nine years. Had three children with my wife, of course. And then at the age of 30, decided that I wanted to, to move away from England and to, to write novels, which is what I intended doing in the first place. And so, yeah, I made that move beginning of 2001. And only from that point started writing fiction full time. And was it terrifying the, the day you first sat down in your farmhouse in France and thought, OK, I'm going to be a novelist today? Was it terrifying? Yes, because I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, I, I, my my first idea for a book, I didn't even have a book idea when I moved there, which seems insane in retrospect. But um, my first idea for a book was to, to write it from the point of view of a flea, which, again, seems not the greatest of ideas, really. And I spent, I think, two months trying to write a book from the point of view of a flea before I gave up, and then had the idea for The Republic of Trees. It, it seemed a long time when I was doing it, it seemed, it seemed to go on for about half a year, but it was actually about two months I spent writing scenes which never made the book because they were terrible. I mean, I, they, they had no life and, and I just had no idea what I was doing. I, I thought because I was a journalist that I would be able to, to write fiction and it would be the same thing and discovered that all the tricks that you learn as a, a journalist, the kind of shortcuts, all work against you when you're writing a novel. And I was certainly writing the kind of novel that I wanted to write. So yeah, I had to kind of unlearn what I'd learned and start again really. The only, the only thing I, I took from journalism that was useful for writing fiction was was editing 
because I was a sub-editor and an editor as well as a writer and editing your own material is is a big part of it I think and you you obviously thought about the look of the the words on the page quite seriously in, in this book because the, the use of punctuation the, the way that you render things phonetically the way you sort of intercut thoughts from from two different timelines I mean so you sort of there's a sort of visual element really to the way you're presenting the you're the right story. yeah there is yeah and one of the reasons I, I wrote Finn's voice phonetically was I just thought it looked beautiful on the page and the same with Alice's it, the, the use of italics and the the kind of the long paragraphs in in Parr's voice where you're, you're shifting from between between the his, what he's seeing and what he's thinking and yeah I, I, again it was it was something it was the first time I'd really done that where I was kind of thinking about the page as a as a visual object but mm. you're right that's that's definitely what it was you're a father of, of three children and Ben is a father of three children do you think you you had to be a father in order to write this book and and put your mind you put yourself in the the mind of someone who's got these feelings towards his children absolutely I mean I think that was the that was the main Inspiration sounds the wrong word. It was the main kind of fire at the heart of the book, really. You know, the, the, if, was going to, if I was going to sum up the book in, in one or two words, I would say it was about parental love. It's about the love between the parent and the child, and, and the other way around as well. If I was going to sum up the book in, in one or two words, I would say it was about parental love. It's about the love between the parent and the child, and, and the other way around as well. Um, and I think, yeah, to, to, to write about that, you've really got to have felt it, I think. And obviously, yeah, the, the, the father has got three children, more or less very similar ages to mine, and he's living in a kind of very isolated place, which, you know, without exaggerating too much, I do live in quite an isolated place. So the, the parallels are definitely there. I've never gone to the extremes that, that, that part it. But that, that's true of my other books as well. You know, they're, they're kind of what-if books, mm. all of them really. The other two were what-if books about my past, and this is a what-if book about my future. And I think writing it is cathartic in the sense that you know you would never go there, in fact. But one of the things I was feeling very much before I started writing the book was a fear and a sadness at my children losing their innocence. One of the things that I learned through writing it, the one of the things that one of the cathartic elements was was to accept that you know they are going to lose their innocence it's unavoidable and it's and it's good it's a good thing to happen even if it's sad in its own way that um, it is inevitable and and you know so i've i've accepted that in a way from from through writing the book I think. Mm. that was sam taylor whose book the island at the end of the world is out now in trade paperback that's all for this edition of the faber podcast but there's plenty more to listen to on the Faber website at faber.co.uk. And you can make sure you don't miss any future episodes of this podcast by subscribing at iTunes. Simply type Faber into the search box at iTunes. It's absolutely free. I hope you'll join me again next month. And until then, thank you for listening and goodbye.